We're starting a new series this month called The Father uh, and or Our Father. Uh, but um, what we really wanted to talk about, and I actually remember somebody asked me at one point, uh, I was talking to another pastor, and he was like, hey, so what is your church? Are you guys a Jesus church? Are you guys a Father church? Are you guys a Holy Spirit church? Like, what is your church like? And I was like, man, first of all, I've never heard that question. That's interesting, but also I exact I know exactly what you're talking about, right? Like there's certain aspects uh, that you see in the Trinity that you, sometimes you see a church that really leans into one of these aspects, like Father's heart, right? And you can see, and we can talk about it, and we'll be teaching a lot about it. Or you see these like Holy Spirit churches, which they focus a lot on the move of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, and there's a lot of these dynamics. And or there's a Jesus church where it's, you know, and you kind of really understand like, it's like, oh, that really makes a lot of sense. So to real say really clearly up front, I, I don't intend to be any specific part of the Trinity Church uh, by no means. I know it says love Jesus, love people, but you could also say, like, love God, love people. Like, you could just, for me, it's not about championing one of the aspects of the Trinity. Um, all of the aspects of the Trinity really speak to the fullness of the face of God and who he is in our life. So really, really love it. And so I was like, man, it's kind of cool. I think we might uh, be, uh, because of our focus, we focus a lot on Jesus, I think. And so I was like, man, I'm really excited. That might be kind of fun. And also I feel like God is is doing something in our current phase and season as a church family, which is I believe that the heart of Father is, is trying to and is shining really, really clearly in this community. Like I can see it even in the way our homes and our houses of Acts are beginning to take on a different shape and a different expression and a different feel in discipleship. And you see these aspects start to flourish. And then you see these certain aspects of provision and finances and ownership starting to really flourish and come to the surface for this community, which is totally Father's heart. Um, And so today I'm going to be talking about two aspects of the Father that I really love, which are generosity and really, it's about ownership as well. Uh, Father is incredibly generous. And you don't even need to look any further than for God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Like, first off and foremost, the most famous scripture in Christian history, at least in modern history, John 3.16 says it so clearly that the entire significance of our new covenant relationship began and has an opportunity to begin for each of us because of the generosity of God. Because of Father's heart, he sent his son. Isn't that amazing? Like this entire thing starts off because God was super generous. And this is actually kind of cool to me because, you know, when you see kind of how God interacts with us or encounters us, his interaction and encounter from God to us should never end in that kind of linear space. But God always operates in a way that when he impacts us, it's meant to change the way we approach others around us. God sent his son to die for us while we were still sinners. So God shows incredible love and sacrificial, generous giving towards us when we were in a place of guilt and wrong. 
And in the context of all of Father's generosity in our life, I wonder if it can't really press firmly upon our willingness to be generous with people in our life. And I think sometimes we are generous in a very calculated, scientific way almost. You know, we even think about generosity sometimes like, hey, is that good soil? Because I want to get something back for my generosity, you know? If I'm going to invest, I want to see a return on my investment, right? And sometimes we think this way, but I, I would really speak to not just, hey, look, yeah, there's stewardship aspects in the word, the parable of talent. It's really clear is be good stewards of your stuff, your money, your finances, your talents, even beyond money. But also, like, recognize Father God's generosity towards us. That some of his generosity to send his son for us will not be well received or see a return in some lives. Like God desires that all would accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, that none should perish, but nonetheless, some will reject Jesus. So in some ways, Father's investment is going to return void in some lives. And I think this is important to understand because initially we could see this as waste, right? Sometimes being generous will look like waste. It will look like not rational, not scientific. It'll just look like I gave of my time. I gave of my energy. I gave of my resources. And I didn't see any good come from it. That person is still horrible. They still sin horribly. They still squander their money. They took my money. Instead of spending it on food, they bought booze and drugs. Sometimes generosity isn't exactly as scientific and one-for-one as we want it to be. But nonetheless, recognize that God's generosity is one that doesn't just say, I'm going to be generous to those who are going to steward it well. But God, Father, God's generosity is to all. So in this place, I think that there's this real importance that we see that God is incredibly generous with all of us. And you see in Hebrews 9.15, it says, there is, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, referring to Jesus, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. I think it's important that we understand what are the most important, generous aspects of Father God. So often we see Father God as generous, and we think of God as generous in a financial way. And if we could just for a moment move away from financial conversation over God's generosity, and if we could perhaps move to eternal concepts and really weigh those and measure those and feel those. Because the crazy thing is, is that when God gives us money, that's an incredibly temporary reality. But we fixate on the generosity of God in a financial way. It's temporary. It's actually amazing to me how much we've made God's generosity a teaching over financial return. Do you guys find this amazing? The most eternal aspects of our inheritance aren't seen in money, but they're seen in mercy in grace, in love, in salvation. And you see Jesus as this mediator of us receiving an inheritance of, and if I wrapped it up fully, it's the nature of God. We get this crazy, even irrational, definitely undeserved 
inheritance of God's nature in our life. The blood of Jesus allows us the ability and the opportunity to have redemption, to receive an internal inheritance of the nature and the divinity of God. How incredible and amazing is that we become co-heirs with Christ. We get to experience the fullness of Father because of the blood of Jesus. Isn't this spectacular? This is, this is beyond unreasonable. It really is. It's undeserving. Since the beginning of humanity, we have been blowing covenant opportunity after covenant opportunity after covenant opportunity with God. We've been blowing it. Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, like just a list of the lineage of blowing covenant is profound. From Tower of Babel to the blowing it in the desert. I got this awesome like meme the other day. Somebody, it was, a, it was two pictures. It was Moses, you know, the movie, the cinema, the famous one. You know what I'm talking about? First of all, Charleston Heston, yeah. What a, Charleston, 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 that guy. First of all, what a great and glorious beard and hair. <laughs> like, is that not the most spectacular hair and beard ever? It's so amazing. It's like, that must have been Moses' hair and beard. It must have actually been. But anyways, it was this picture of him, right? And it was like, <laughs> Moses wasn't very good at directions. And it showed a GPS of <laughs> where he was to going to the promised land. And the amount of time it should take to walk. <laughs> and it's definitely not 40 years. Anyways, I'm not here to criticize Moses' directions. Hindsight's always 2020. It's so easy for us. But you see this beautiful, amazing richness of the eternal inheritance of God. And I believe it's pretty well illustrated in Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. I'm not and perhaps going to read all of it, but just reference different points. It says, but God being rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. I can't almost encourage enough today to move away from monetary fiscal understandings of the generosity and the richness of God to eternal characteristics of God and the wealth of them. The lavish nature he pours it out on us in an undeserving way. It's truly profound. It's actually crazy. You know, like when we sin and make a mistake, the, the actual incredible blood of Jesus' power in our life. It's crazy. It goes beyond our, our ability to understand it usually. Like oftentimes we think that when we sin, we ought to have a certain degree of grounding time. Do you realize? You might actually realize this after I tell you about it. You might not realize it, but you might actually be grounding yourself after sinning. You might not realize it, but you might be putting yourself in a corner, throwing a dunce cap on and saying, I don't deserve to be around God until I pay my dues for all my sins. Sometimes we think that we get reconciled back to God by punishing ourselves, but we don't. It's not by works, lest any man should boast. Salvation comes by faith. Salvation comes by grace. These are the ingredients of not leveling the wager sheet, not leveling the ledger so that we are all, I'm all caught up. I sinned pretty bad, but I also punished myself for five years. I allowed myself no good thing for five years. 
And here I am now, feeling like I'm actually capable of receiving God's favor and grace in my life. Sometimes we act towards ourselves and or we put on God this very uh, disciplinarian coach or teacher or parent type of dynamic where it's like, hey, you know what? I love you, but I'm super disappointed in you. So give me your phone. You're not going to see the light or the sun for at least two months. You're going to get locked up in your chambers upstairs. Don't even think about asking to see anything for a long time. So sometimes we do this with God. We make a mistake and we feel horrible. We tuck tail and we put ourselves in our room, grounded, cut off from all communication, from all friends and from all people. And it's just not the way that God redeems us. It's just not the way that God transforms us. He doesn't transform us through punishment. He transforms us through powerful love encounters. And this is hard to really grasp and wrap our head around because so much of the productivity of our life has been through a series of self-discipline and or others disciplining us and or a reward and or removal of reward system. So Pavlov's dog is a great example. I was a psych major. One of the only things I remember from my degree is Pavlov's dog. Legitimately, I think I actually learned it before I even got my degree in psychology, which means I think I remember nothing from my degree. Super worth it, guys. College is important. Any youth in here, college is great. It is. So, but the, look, Pavlov's dog, right? Bell, treat, saliva. Bell, treat, saliva. Bell, treat, saliva. Initially, or at some point, you cannot even give a treat. You could just ring the bell and the dog's going to saliva. Oftentimes, this is how we're trained as Christians, which is like a dog salivating after a bell rings. And we're like, hey, where's the treat? Where's the treat? And we're like super motivated by treats. And we're like, God, I really like walking with you, but I'm going to need a treat every once in a while to keep this association up. And all of a sudden, we stop finding value in simple relationship with God, or like the Bible says, godliness with contentment is great gain. We say, God, being in relationship with you is cool, but I I really feel like at this point, I'm due for a little bit of a fiscal reward. I'm due for a little bit of a reward in some way, like I've been walking with you, God, and it's nice feeling your presence and all, but, you know, pragmatically speaking, I'm going to need to do something here. I'd encourage you guys to really begin to understand and see that the generosity of God is most significantly recognized and realized not in financial gain or a reward of things, but it's most significantly realized in those things which cannot be corrupt, cannot be taken, cannot be eaten by moth and dust, but are things that are eternal and that are unshakable and that you can have for the rest of eternity, which is the nature of God. It's his greatest gift. It's his greatest gift that through the blood of Jesus and that redemption, we get to partake in the nature of God. We get to exchange what, what, for, we get to exchange what definitely should be our reality, which we should be contained and confined by the curses of our fathers and our mothers. The blood, the DNA code that lives inside of me for my father and my mother, It should be the prerequisite and it should be the boundary for how I can behave. It should define my potential. 
But when you have relationship with Jesus, when you've given him your life, it is no longer the blood of your mother and father here on earth that defines your potential, but it's the blood of Jesus. Dude, isn't that fun? Rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches, immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Wow. There's this generosity about God that's so profound. And the reason I'm focusing on this foundation of what is the true, generous, rich nature of God and moving it away from financial and thing focus to the eternal attributes and characteristics of God, the reason I'm focusing on this is because in your walk with God, if you are measuring if you are measuring God's generosity towards you by the amount of things you're getting or money you're seeing in your bank account, you might deeply and profoundly miss God's generosity coming towards you. And you're going to feel like an orphan that is, 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 is without. And you're going to feel like that one famous orphan that's like, please, sir, can I have some more? Oliver Twist, right? Charlton Heston, got it. <laughs> And you're going to feel like an orphan where you're just like, I don't have anything. I'm poor. I'm destitute. I don't have stuff. I need things. God, won't you give to me? Won't you give to me? Won't you give to me? God, I haven't seen your blessings in my life. And if you're just talking dollar signs and toys like boats and four-wheelers and quads and side-by-sides and climbing gear and surfboards, these are all my hobbies. (laughs) When I was in Florida, I went surfing once. Guys, I'm ready to go all in. We got to do a church plant in some beach cities. I'm really feeling like God's calling us to plant in Florida. It's definitely not my desire to be there at different times. I was looking up surfboards, and I was like, babe, surfboards. (laughs) And I was like, surfing. And I told somebody else, I was like, I think I'm going to get into surfing. They're like, of course you are. (laughs) Sure, that makes sense. (laughs) Take every radical free bird kind of sport and just, yeah, that's going to happen eventually. But this is the reality, right? If we are seeing God's generosity through this scope of things and money, we're not going to see him as generous sometimes. It's going to be incredibly seasonal. And if Job saw the value of God only as the things he had, he would have missed God at his worst moments. And those are the times when you really need to see God. When you've lost everything. When you're starting at scratch. Not a zilch. Don't have anything to your name. You know, nine months ago, the mountain got this really amazing ability to be launched. But also, we started with nothing. Somebody asked me the other day, they're like, hey, I think you're a reformer, but... Are you afraid to be a reformer because of, like, you know, what you can lose? I was like, well, not really. The nine months ago, we started with nothing. <laughs> I don't have, I didn't have anything. I wasn't like some kind of powerful pastor with all this property, all this money in the bank account, all of this stuff, you know, all this great, you know, history of finances where I can, you know, leverage it for financing of some kind of thing. Like, nothing. When the Israelites left Egypt, they left with, like, well, they left with some things because of the ten plagues and stuff. But, look, they didn't leave with much. Yeah, you know, they got some stuff. They got some stuff. 
But they didn't leave with much, and eventually what they were living in was a reality where God provided for them day by day. Day by day. We shouldn't trust our resources and or have our confidence in God because of the great resources he's given us. We should trust God because he is generous day by day, day by day. So if it's manna today and manna tomorrow, yeah. Come on, that's where God's got me. I'm super excited by it. I'm super excited by it. I really am. Like, is it more comfortable to have millions in the bank account and just cash the thing right out the gate? Sure, sure. But is it more relational with God to walk in whatever phase you're in and to say, God, I trust you. I'll walk wherever you call me to walk, even if I don't have the resources to get there and I'll need you to give it to me tomorrow and the next day and the next day. See, that's what it means to trust that God is generous, that whatever he says, walk in it because his generosity will literally lead you to have it when you need it. God's generosity is the foundation for this ownership mindset that we're really going to be talking about. And you see this mindset show up and and realize in a lot of different places. So I want to talk a little bit about God's generosity and the way his partnership with us in generosity leads us to think about stewardship, possessing, and dominion differently. Even from the beginning of our story in Genesis 1, 26, 28, you see what the purpose of humanity was. And it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill all the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. The beautiful thing is that this whole thing belongs to God, right? All of the earth. You see in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 10, 14, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of the heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Colossians 1, 16 through 17 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So check this out. The thing I really love about this is that as we are in relationship with God, and we define our being and our reality as being that of a follower of Jesus, living with God. John 15 says it so well, abide in, I, abide in me and I in you. It's so clear that residency with God is the mandate for a Christian. It is the reality for a Christian. So how does this show up in the way we approach our environment, in the way we approach our communities, in the way we approach finances? Well, I believe that it, has, it shows up in very specific ways. There is a mandate on us as Christians and as people of God to have dominion. So what does this mean? This doesn't mean that we rule over others like the Gentiles do. But what this means is that the way we approach thing, uh, the way we approach the things that God has called us to is with the confidence of somebody who owns it all. See, if we're with God and we're walking in God's will and obedience, then what we should trust is that it's not even by my power anyways. I'm just a faithful responder to the voice of God. So he owns it all, which is actually pretty cool because if you even think about just the church situation right now, should we fear our, for our future? Well, no, he owns this building, he owns that building. 
He owns the concrete. He owns the street over there. He owns the apartment complex over there. He owns the bank accounts and the banks that have the bank accounts. He owns the cryptocurrency things, even though it's still very hard for me to understand what cryptocurrency is. I don't care how many times people tell me, oh, it's real simple, man. Blah, 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 blah. Ledger of transactions, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, what are we talking about? He owns it all. He owns it all, which means that when I'm partnering with God, if I am fearful of what man can do, it means that I don't have a clear revelation of God. Any and all expressions of fear are a limited perspective of God. Any and all expressions of fear in our life are an illumination and an uncovering that we don't have a clear revelation of God. The Bible says, for I have not given you a spirit of fear, for I have not given you a spirit of fear. So if you've got it, guess what? If I got it, guess what? It doesn't come from God. It doesn't come from God. So where perfect love is, it casts out all fear. So God isn't just judging us and saying, hey, if you've got a spirit of fear, what's, what's, what's wrong with you? He's also saying, look, hey, my perfect love is going to cast out all fear. So so here's the thing. Wherever your fear exists, invite God into that space, and it will be a natural process of fear leaving. How cool is that? If this, then that. If God is present, fear is not. Sick, dude. I am so stuck by that, which, which means this, that if fear is present and you invite God in your life and fear remains, it means that you have what's called a stronghold or bondage. You are holding on to something or something is holding on to you that you don't have revelation, understanding, or freedom in yet. So what should you do to get out of that fear? You should chase that thing down. You should talk to everybody and their mother about that fear. And you should probe wise counsel. You should pray to God. You should fast. Look, a lot of times people want to know what what they should study, what God's doing in their life. I'm like, you want to know what he's doing in your life? Just find the fear. Find the fear. That's what God's working on. That's where God's trying to reside. And that's where God's trying to live. Find the fear and you'll find the blueprint for what God's doing in your life. Oh, but I'm just in this desert place. I can't hear from God. I don't know what he's saying. I don't know what he's doing. I just haven't seen a lot happen and this, that, and the other. First of all, no biblical desert reality was ever devoid of God. It's just not the case. If you point to the Israelites in the desert, whoa, cloud by day, fire by night. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty supernatural God to me. Manna, food falling from heaven every day. What? And then crazily on the sixth day and not for two days. That's, guys, that is God more present than if they were in a land that already had all the goods they needed. So don't tell me desert seasons are a time of God being silent or God being absent from your life and you need to find him. God is with you even to the end of the age. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Don't let the devil lie to you and tell you because you're trying to find breakthrough in something that God isn't present. It's the great lie of the enemy to convince us and persuade us of a false reality. That's what fear is. It's believing a false reality. 
Oh, what are you going to do? You don't have a place. You don't have a thing. You don't have a house. You don't have enough money. You don't have, you don't have, you don't have. Okay, so my father owns a cattle on a thousand hills. So if I'm without, I'm not fearing because wherever he calls me, he'll give me whatever I need in order for me to walk with him. So I don't fear because my interest is in walking in the will of God. And so sometimes we're not walking in the will of God and or we haven't committed our lives to relationship with God. Guess what? God's love is unconditional and is perfect, but his blessing is not. His blessing is not. And I really believe that if you are in a time of famine, I mean real famine, you haven't heard from God, you haven't seen God, you don't know where he's at, you can't feel him, know him, or even perceive him in the word or teaching or in worship. In no way, shape, or form you can experience God. I will say take a really deep look and find someone that can speak truth and love to your life and reconcile your heart to God. Because God is always there, always speaking. Always, always, always giving. I really believe, like, if there is moments in your life, not where you're going through trials and tribulations and sufferings, that's a part of our journey. I'm saying that you don't have a connection or a relationship with God. In that place, threat level highest one, I don't know what it is in America, what's the highest level, orange? I don't know, whatever. Highest level threat in your life, sound the alarm, stop everything, stop eating, get prostrate before Jesus and say, I'm not leaving this room, I'm not leaving this place until I reconnect with you. I'm not leaving this place until I give you the fullness of my life. I'm not leaving this place, I'm going to war in this place of prayer until I get to a place where I have so wrestled with my own will and my own flesh to say, you will be yielded and you will be subjected to God. Give it all. Lay it on the altar. Living sacrifices. Lay it on the altar. Lay it on the altar. Lay it on the altar. You might have got up off the altar at some point because you didn't like the fire. But I want to encourage you to trust God that if he's consuming things, it is so much, so much, so much, so much better for you to allow him to consume those things than for you to hang on to your own life in its existence in current form. I can speak to many scriptures and places in scripture where it says beauty for ashes. An exchange of my life for the life of God. And if you want to hang on to your own life, you're not going to get the life with God. This is the reality of walking a blessed life with God. It shouldn't be measured in finances. It should be measured in intimate relationship with God. Measured in mercy, measured in grace, measured in intimacy with Jesus. It should be measured by these intangible, eternal characteristics. Are you blessed and highly favored? If you've got great relationship with God. I mean, if you've got a surrendered life, then yeah, for sure. Are you loved by God? Always. Always. But blessing in your life is realized in a cooperative partnership with God. It's recognized and realized in obedience. It's not something that is unconditional. It's something that great partnership with God realizes in our life. Deuteronomy 8, we don't have time to read the whole chapter, but the whole chapter is awesome. Uh, and Deuteronomy, just as a, a, a biblical context of this thing, you know, Moses is doing a, an incredible job of, of speaking to Israel. 
I mean, the whole, the whole book is really cool because it's a different context. You know, a lot of the other books where Moses was in was like God spoke to Moses, but this one is he's speaking to the people of God. And the whole point of it is an edification and an encouragement to live for God. And I want to read one of the aspects in 8.1. It says, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you. And if you skip down to verse 17, it says, beware. Lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. This is Moses speaking before they're about to go into the promised land, and it's saying, look, when you have prosperity, especially financial or material prosperity, remember that it is the Lord doing it in your life so you can see a confirmation of his covenant in your life. Because it's so easy once you have it all to go, I have it all. And something can happen in that place if you don't require your mind to remember God, to remember his goodness, to remember his faithfulness in a hungry season in the desert where you are walking cloud by day, fire by night, and you are walking with a meal a day. Only enough for the day. I want to encourage you in this, man, like walk with the Lord. There is some frightening and almost causes trembling in you, things that says at the end, and if you forget the Lord, your God, and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. You know, we see these places of warning from biblical figures, and sometimes we wave off Old Testament warnings because, like, ah, oh, that's the Old Testament. Super crazy scene. It's just the Old Testament. But look at it. What it's really saying for a New Testament or a New Covenant reality is that when it says you shall surely perish, you don't even need to look any further than you shall spiritually perish. There will be a place of disconnect with God spiritually that will feel like death. And it will even have some people longing to be dead because life without God is very painful. It's very traumatic. It causes suffering in a deep way that we ought not experience because the joy of the Lord is our strength. The presence of God, there are pleasures forevermore. This is talking about a warning that if we don't rest on the confidence that God provided then, he'll provide now. And if he doesn't provide, then that means that I'm super stoked and content with just godliness. I can go a couple days without eating. Just a couple. I'm not a pro pastor faster. I know some pastors out there are pros at fasting, and I I honor them. And I eat for them. (laughs) You know, people that aren't good at fasting, we love the part where they go up to the disciples and they're like, hey, Jesus, and we're like, hey, why aren't these guys fasting? He's like, hey, man, (laughs) you don't fast now. You fast when I leave, you know. That's the scriptures we love when we're not good at fasting. We're like, I live with Jesus, man. (laughs) 